that this life that I thought was over uh, was really just beginning to learn that that yes, I had been dealing with loss and I had been dealing with pain and suffering, but there was hope and possibility. And to to, to paint a dark canvas of uh, lack of knowledge of what that life might be like into you know a boldly colored, richly textured life could only happen by being connected with people who could inspire me and show me the way and people have been there before me. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. I'm the other co-host, Michael Palmer. Michael, we have an amazing episode lined up today. We have as our guest, the legend himself, the one, the only man in motion himself, Rick Hansen. It's, it's just, for me, it's when, when, uh, when we had Rick booked, it was like, uh, pinch myself, the man in motion. I remember being a teenager, Summerland, British Columbia. I'm standing in the, in the, the, the park. He's up in the amphitheater. And my God, was it awesome to see this man and such an inspiration and the work that he was doing. It was, you know, I've never forgotten that moment. He's been an inspiration to me. I remember him being such a happy, friendly, positive, optimistic guy, muscles rippling, doing his thing, going, wow, man, I, I want to be like Rick Hansen when I grow up. So he's, he's a thought leader in his own right. And with no further ado, let's get him in. Welcome to the show, Rick. Hey, Michael, Nikki, how you guys doing? And thanks so much for uh, asking me to be part of this. Oh, it's the honor is ours. The honor is absolutely ours. Rick, we love to start every episode of the show by asking our guest, you know, what is it that brought you to be Rick Hansen? How did you get to be you? What's the backstory? The listener really would love to know that. You know, probably my best uh, storyline would be as a kid growing up in British Columbia, surrounded by family and friends on uh, on all kinds of crazy adventures, you know, fishing and camping and playing sports. Uh, you know, it was really uh, that, that period. They say that your character is often largely formed in the first six years of life. And, uh, and I truly was in a blessed position. And uh, I learned a lot. Uh, I, uh, I was inspired. And I think I... I got imprinted in that DNA that I uh, I, I truly was uh, some someone who had that nature of being an adventure, and and it was that pursuit of sport and uh, of course the goals and dreams that led me to a place at the age of 15 where you know uh, I was uh, a pretty decent athlete. I uh, I had crazy dreams of maybe wanting to represent my country at the Olympic Games one day. And, and, and of course, I, uh, in the meantime, was was looking forward to the fact that I was going to be trying out for the provincial volleyball team. And and just before that, um, uh, me and my friends decided to go on a fishing trip, another uh, adventure for uh, over a week out uh, in the uh, west coast of British Columbia, a place called Bellacoola. And we were hitchhiking home from that trip, and uh, we... Uh, we were in the back of a pickup truck, and the truck rolled over, crashed, 
and I got pinned on the inside and uh, thrown against a big steel toolbox, and that shattered my back and damaged my spinal cord, and it left me paralyzed. And of course, that became a, a pivotal point in my life, and one where I, I felt that pretty much all of my hopes and dreams had been shattered along with my spine, and uh, things seemed to be pretty uh, pretty bleak at that moment. Wow. And I mean, your story is one that's well known all across Canada and, and beyond. What gave you the fortitude to be able to overcome that and, and, and become this, this global icon that you've become today? Well, you know, I think in, in, in life's journey, when, when you end up with setbacks and, uh, and you're challenged, uh, you know, typically you rely on some of the, you know, your character, the nature that you've helped, uh, you know, acquire, you know, so being that adventurous spirit being an athlete at heart, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was fiercely determined to, to try everything to recover and had no idea of the complexity of the, of the injury, the seriousness of it. And that the spinal cord, you know, really can't regrow on its own without, uh, you know, some incredible, uh, you know, futuristic intervention. And so, um, I spent every waking moment, you know, willing my legs to move, um, and as each passing day and then week and then month took place, uh, uh, the reality of that situation started to sink in. And and, uh, and at that point, I started to turn to other goals like moving uh, from a hospital bed into the wheelchair, moving from the wheelchair to learn how to hop awkwardly on crutches and braces, um, and, uh, and then learning uh, through role models. And, uh, and with the support of family uh, and friends and the medical community to learn that, you know, that, that this life that I thought was over uh, was really just beginning to learn that, that yes, I had been dealing with loss and I had been dealing with pain and suffering, but there was hope and possibility. And to, to, to paint a dark canvas of uh, lack of knowledge of what that life might be like into, you know, a boldly colored, richly textured life could only happen by being connected with people who could inspire me and show me the way and people have been there before me. You know, uh, I was very fortunate to meet an incredible mentor named Stan Strong. And he was the first person who had ever survived a spinal cord injury in uh, British Columbia. And he was injured in the 1930s. And, and when I complained about being in the hospital for four months, he reminded me that he wasn't supposed to survive and he was there in that hospital for four years <laughs> and that there were no rehab centers uh, for him back then, uh, no possibilities, but yet he had carved a life for himself and had remained optimistic and he had held on to the one thing that he could control, which was his attitude and he saw possibilities and he not only lived a great life, but he also reached back to help others through peer counseling support and was the team manager of a wheelchair basketball team. And so he introduced me to the fact that, that nowhere in the definition of an athlete does it, does it say you have to use your legs in order to be one. And he, he, he was part of that Paralympic movement that my, uh, my phys ed teacher had told me about and, and, and he inspired me to get involved and, and that built a momentum in my life. And of course, it made me realize that my biggest handicap was not the physical disability that I had acquired through my injury, but it was my attitude. I had inherited, you know, I guess by osmosis or whatever, unconsciously, an incredible 
stereotype, uh, a bias towards people with disabilities. And, uh, and if I had re-architected that attitude and, uh, and then reframed, then all of a sudden, uh, you know, my life started to move forward again. I was back in motion. I was filled with passion. I was still Rick the athlete, Rick the outdoorsman. Uh, the adventurer, and I just had to adapt and see it differently, and and modify my life, and and ultimately that moved me into the uh, you know the Paralympic community and to become a world champion, uh, a gold medalist, and uh, and ultimately uh, feel so grateful that I had to be compelled to pay it forward and embark on my Man in Motion World Tour to change attitudes about the potential of people with disabilities. It's a remarkable, remarkable story and very inspirational for me. And uh, I grew up in British Columbia as well. So when you came, it was kind of on the last leg, I guess, of your, of your, of your tour. And, you know, there's lots of people who do things where they run across the country or they cycle across the country or they do, you know, they're raising money, they have a cause, but your, your, Man in Motion tour was, I mean, at the time, it was epic. And I'd really like to hear the story of how, you know, it, it just wasn't you wheeling across these different countries, but it was a global, uh, uh, it was known globally. What were some of the things that happened that ha- helped you actually get it to this level where y- you were known? Well, you know, the first thing was that I, I, I had to actually you know, in, in, in your journey, you always see barriers or problems uh, in society and you can either complain about them or you can do something about them. And as a Paralympian representing my country, traveling the world, I saw these attitudinal and physical barriers, the same ones that I'd faced myself in my journey, and they were amplified in magnitude throughout everywhere around the world. And my Paralympic colleagues had often, uh, you know, uh, highlighted that, that they too shared those same observations and realities. And and I had become a marathoner by then. And uh, I realized that I had a strength and I'd had this old adventure dream of maybe wheeling around the world one day. And I was able to, uh, thanks to the inspiration of my good friend, Terry Fox, I was, I was able to, you know, think about my way of contributing and uh, take my experience globally and, and realize that if I, wheeled around the world in a wheelchair, uh, the equivalent of the circumference of the earth at the equator through 34 countries and four continents that I could demonstrate the potential and ability of people with disabilities and remind people that if they saw their abilities or the abilities of their family, friends, or colleagues, or community members who had disabilities, that the great things could happen. And also that they could actually contribute by removing physical barriers that prevented people from fully participating in society and contributing and that that would uh, lift up society and, uh, and ultimately uh, achieve uh, great things. And so that became the inspiration for forming my vision and my dream. And once you have that, that's the, that's the most important ingredient. And then the most critical ingredient is, is actually taking that first step, you know, to, to talk about it is relatively easy to, spend the time planning and preparing as best you can, mobilizing your team, amazing team members who without them, you're, you're just delusional. And, uh, and then to cut past the fears of failure, the uncertainty, the, 
the the dynamic between being prepared and responsible and being perhaps uh, you know over over planning and and to see your dream uh, disappear into the vapor uh, of possibilities and and I I really had to get to a place where I knew that that we had to leave on this date and if we didn't the window of opportunity would close and it would be just one of those dreams that I'd be sitting back in 10 years wondering wow well, I wonder what would have happened and so the that day of March 21st 1985 was the was the most important victory when we took our first stroke out of the Oak Ridge Mall in Vancouver, British Columbia, heading southward uh, towards the United States, and that was uh, that was a, a, an unbelievable moment. Yeah, incredible. Rick, how did you overcome what I call the chattering monkeys? I mean, in my head, I've got these chattering monkeys that tell me you know, maybe maybe you can't do this. Maybe it's too tough. Maybe you're not the guy. Maybe it's meant to be someone else. And, and I got to believe everybody's got some version of that going on in their head. How did you overcome yours? You know, I, I think you, first of all, you know, remind yourself, you know, that there's a reason why you're doing it. Number two, you, you realize that, you know, you maybe can't control fate or destiny. Uh, however, the one thing you can control is, your, you know, the application of your energy and your passion and your determination and to, to give it all you can and to, to not get so caught up in, in just the end game um, that you lose focus of the moment. And I think a lot of athletes will tell you that they'll have a, a vision, uh, an outcome in their mind. Uh, but when it, if you're a basketball player and you're on the free throw line, you know, you're not thinking of the next quarter, you know, it's that you've got to be in that moment or that shot's going to get missed and you're going to maybe end up losing the game. And so every, uh, every moment uh, of each day, you know, was, uh, was about all you could control and, and to stay in that moment was so important. And, and then there are times when, when you, you know, you, you're ready to perhaps give up and, and you have these fears and you see, you see, uh, you know, uh, a sense of bleakness coming over you. And we all need inspiration and we all need encouragement. And I, I, I like lean on my friends and my, you know, like my teammates a lot. And they were, they were just unbelievable. You know, these people had given up my, their careers and, uh, and they worked in the background supporting me. And, uh, and I really felt like they had my back and, and, uh, you know, even though we were always trying to improve and there were always challenges and problems, you know, I really felt that I could trust my team and, uh, and, and they really helped propel me forward. It made me feel stronger. And then I also had to reconcile the difference between, you know, the dream of, uh, wow, it's going to be this great impact and, you know, and, and all that effort will be worth it with the reality of sometimes each day it was, you know, it just wasn't happening. And, and I was in pain, I was injured and long, lonely miles and the weather was terrible and it was 70 or 80 kilometers an hour wind and zero degrees and rain and sleet. Ouch. And, <laughs> and those, those, those moments were, were, were devastating, but every day there was something to be grateful for. And I'd always see it, you know, there'd be like, uh, you know, there'd be a, a, a police officer who was escorting us, who would just tell us a story about his, his friend when he was, uh, when he was in, in service in Vietnam, or there would be a, a family member at the end of a day or on the road who would 
would come out with someone uh, who has a disability and, and they would just say, you know, I, I heard about your tour, you know, just it's so inspirational and, you know, keep going. We're, we're behind you. And, you know, it'd be in Poland and there would be this guy who was, he was obviously paralyzed, but he didn't have a wheelchair. All he had was a, a piece of plywood with a pillow on it and four little skateboard wheels. And he pushed himself along the road with his hands and his, his gloves on. And, and he had tears streaming down his face and, and through, through an interpreter, he, he said, thank you so much for, for changing my life. And, and then I asked what, what he meant. And he went on to say that because of the journey that, and in the preparation for my arrival into his community, it was the first time that his family and his community had looked at him with a sense of ability and pride. And and uh, you know when you when you get those moments, that that negative chatter, the self doubt, the you know the uncertainties uh, of the future, uh, I couldn't control what would be like coming back to Canada or at the end. Um, but I could see in that moment there was something beautiful happening, and uh, and it made it worthwhile, and that kept me moving forward on the relentless pursuit of this incredibly challenging journey, but also to never be really perfectly satisfied with where we were because we're always trying to grow, to improve, to try to get the word out, to to try to impact more people. And uh, I'm I'm super grateful for the fact that somehow we managed to, you know, to move the, move the bar forward. And, And every once in a while you get to a place where you're really, you're just done. And, uh, I know coming up the Eastern seaboard of the United States, after coming through this triumphant, Asian, you know, part of our tour where millions of people were involved and we just couldn't get the word out and people in the States were really supportive and but we just didn't impact a lot of people and I was just dejected and I thought I was going to, I was going to quit. And my physiotherapist, who's now my wife, Amanda had sat me down that evening when I was ready to pack it in and said, you know, you, you, you can't see around the corner and I know you're about ready to lose hope, but you can't. Because, you know, every time we've come along this journey, uh, when we've gotten close to this point, something, something amazing has happened. Someone has come to put their shoulders to the wheel to help fill your sail with wind to give you that next level of boost. And, and it's going to happen. You just have to hang in there. And by the time we get to Canada, people are going to respond. And little did, little did she know at the time, uh, I definitely didn't, because of that, uh, that chat, I, I sucked it up and got out there the next day and kept going. And by the time we got to New York, we had this unexpected interview with Brian Gumble on the Today Show that was on a Canadian long weekend Monday. And a lot of Canadians were listening to that and watching that interview. And one particular Canadian named George Cohan, the head of McDonald's Canada, he was so inspired that he, he as a business leader, engaged with not only his company, but, uh, but other leaders, you know, throughout the entire country and, and the level of support continued to accelerate. And so by the time I got back to Newfoundland, there was just this amazing, uh, overwhelming response of Canadians from coast to coast. And Amanda was right in that pivot moment when I just about lost faith and, and given up hope. And, and she, 
spurred me on to just keep believing and and keep grinding it out and just have uh, that belief that maybe someone else would come to take it to the next level and it would be worth it coming across the country in the middle of winter time and getting home after over two years and two months and two days that it would have been worth it. And, and uh, that moment, I'm so grateful for her counsel and inspiration and challenge and, and so grateful for that pivot moment that happened that I could have never predicted. You married up, Rick. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And of course, uh, what a what an what an incredible, uh, an amazing outcome of uh, of our relationship that the tour had forged us not just to you know, be partners in an endeavor, but to be partners in life and uh, and to have three children and to continue to move forward uh, past the end of the Man Emotion tour on our ongoing life journey. Yeah. It's uh, that 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 pivotal moment, just amazing, you know, so close, and and I would imagine many people get to that point and don't have that support around them, and they they give up before the the breakthrough. And uh, I, I'm curious, you know, listening to the story, that that was a curious question for me was when that that tipping point was going to happen. But you know, David Foster, the the uh, the song that went along with your tour, I, I'm just really curious how that came about. Because I think that captured as well the the music captured for me the heart my heart uh, the message and everything and it all just went together. I'd like to hear that that story. Well, when we left on the Man in Motion tour, uh, we we decided that it was really important to try to find ways to to get the word out to pave the way in front of us so that there was more awareness that people could actually respond when our champions would ask people to get involved and. You know, we were brainstorming, and someone uh, said, "You know, why don't we get a, you know, theme song created?" And my friend Don Alder, who is a budding musician, uh, said, oh, "I'll do one." And I said, "I love you, Don, but <laughs> you know, we need somebody famous." You know, uh, and he said, "Well, why don't we get David Foster?" And I said, "Who's David Foster? I don't know who he was because he wasn't a pop star, uh, but he knew that because he was a musician that David Foster was this brilliant." absolutely brilliant producer, composer, and, uh, and that he had, he basically helped, uh, mega stars all over the world become, you know, absolute, uh, you know, uh, you know, icons in the music industry. And, and so another friend at, at a fundraising event, just before we left, Terry David Mulligan, uh, said he knew David and, uh, we gave, we gave Terry a little promotional video and, uh, and a little pamphlet and he sent it to David Foster. And then we were heading down the West coast, uh, in the first part of our journey towards Los Angeles and, and David and, and John Parr were working on the theme song, uh, to the movie and the soundtrack, St. Elmo's Fire. And they, they were really struggling. They, they just couldn't come up with the lyrics. They, 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 they didn't personally relate to the movie and, uh, and they just were, you know, just, they were blocked. And, then they took a break and they'd been working on this thing for days and days and they took a break and, and David said, you know, my friend Terry sent this uh, inspirational video. Uh, I haven't looked at it yet, but let's, let's take a peek at it and see if that can help us. And so they, they put the video on and within 20 minutes after the video, everything clicked for them and they created the theme song, St. Elmo's Fire, Man in Motion. And, and, and all the lyrics are not really about the movie. They're about my bad emotion world tour. And, 
And uh, that became a number one hit all around the world. We met David in Los Angeles and he talked about, you know, his uh, emerging uh, inspiration. And, and by the time we got to Florida, it was a, it was a hit in North, in North America and hit in Europe and hit in, uh, you know, Australia and New Zealand. And, and it became like our, our anthem and it was a huge inspiration for us. And again, those moments where, you know, you, you have a dream and, uh, and, and, and you, uh, you, you reach out for it and, and someone says, yeah, I can help and they help shape it. And then someone says, yeah, I can help and I can connect. And then all of a sudden, you know, there it is, it happens. And uh, we were, uh, again, so grateful. It's remarkable. I, it just brought it all back to me as you were telling the story and, 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 and the tune and the lyrics were going through my head as you were talking about it. I felt like breaking out in song. That's fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, a few things you said I think are, are, are really worth highlighting. You mentioned that part of what allowed you to get through this is that you surrounded yourself with great teammates and great peers. One of the things Michael and I like to say is don't do it alone. So many great people embark on, on ventures in business and in life, and they try to do it all by themselves. And every single icon, every single huge thought leader that we've talked to has told us that they didn't do it alone. They had great peers. They had great teammates. And I think, Rick, it's really worth highlighting, you know, and asking you to maybe comment on that further on how important that was to your success, because I think that'll really help our listener. Well, it's absolutely a fundamental principle. And, and of course, the, the, the proving point for me as a youngster at the age of 15 was that I was forced into such a gauntlet early in, you know, in, in, in dealing with my disability, my accident, the circumstances. I had to challenge, you know, some of these maxims that I had put in my mind as a youngster, but, you know, that to be successful, you know, you have to be fiercely capable physically and you have to be uh, fiercely independent. And uh, those those realities sort of started to trip me up in the biggest way. And I had to learn to open up and that uh, accepting help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength and that to become interdependent is, uh, is our ultimate, uh, you know, potency as human beings, because humans are, you know, we're hardwired to be connected and, and we, uh, we were social beings. And ultimately if you can, if you can open yourself up to ask for help, uh, to seek mentoring, it's not saying, you know, if you, if you need help or if you need development, that you're somehow flawed as a human being or less than anyone. It, it's just that you're on a journey and, and to accept coaching in personal development or professional development to, uh, to ask for support in, uh, in a common endeavor or to overcome a need or to break down a barrier. Those were, absolutely critical lessons of life. And it really turned the tide for me as a self-advocate in my own journey. Cause I, I, I reached out to mentors who could help me uh, overcome, you know, the development challenges to live with my disability and see possibilities. And I reached out to champions who could help me be part of my team to engage in life and also to achieve uh, some of the biggest dreams that I've had to date. And, and that's just a it's, a, it's a natural reality. And, 
And, you know, I often talk to people who have disabilities and sometimes that stubbornness and that, that, that self-pride can be such a handicap. Uh, I see someone struggling for, for so long to try to, you know, get across the street and uh, they're, they're walking on a cane or crutches or a walker. But, you know, if they just jumped into a scooter, you know, at the age of 75 and, and, and blasted down the street, they could not only get across the street in two minutes, but they'd, uh, you know, they'd be down at the shopping mall having coffee with their friends and cruising around and they'd be having challenges keeping up with them. And, and so that mental battle and that interdependence and, and that encouragement uh, is, uh, is something I would just absolutely encourage people to think about and surround yourself with good people and, and uh, we all have them. And sometimes we're just afraid to ask or we get tripped out about that. And I, I, I'm no longer concerned about that. I, I, I think if someone really doesn't want to be involved, they'll often tell you. But the other thing I tell people with disabilities and others that you don't realize that, you know, that most people get a tremendous amount of meaning and purpose when they are given a chance to help someone. And, and so it isn't a burden. And as a matter of fact, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's an inspiration in life. And, and so uh, I, I think when we have the privilege of helping someone in need or someone that's trying to, to grow or to develop or to achieve something meaningful, it's, it's an honor. And, and I, uh, I, I hope more people think about that in their life and, and then keep surrounding themselves with, uh, with, with, with good people. You know, Rick, your the, the, this podcast is, you know, the theme really is make the difference you were born to make. And, you know, I'm just sitting here listening to you and, and you're a pure example of that, uh, almost to the point of me not having any words to express what I'm thinking and feeling. But the last couple of episodes of this podcast, we've had guests on that have talked a lot about the power of creation and creating and, and vi- visualizing your future and and really the, the power of the mind. And your story is just a, an excellent example of, of what's possible when you come up with the dream and you put everything behind it. And surround yourself with people, and uh, and give up whatever's not serving you, to serve others, and uh, and make the difference that you were born to make. And that's uh, for me. It's just been an honor having you on the show, and and uh, very inspirational. And I, I'd really like to. And I know Nikki, we do some action, expert actions, but before that, I'd really like to hear about what you've you're doing now to take this message forward and I know you're up to a lot of different things. Well, you know, I think the most important reality is that life is a journey, not a destination, uh, punctuated by a series of goals and dreams and experiences, uh, setbacks and challenges and learnings and growth along the way. And when I finished the Man in Motion tour, you know, I thought I, thought I was done on the, on, on the journey, um, but I realized quite quickly that the end was just the beginning and, and, uh, because uh, my life had been changed forever uh, by that journey. Uh, I was about to get married uh, to my wife, Amanda, who had been the physiotherapist on our tour and start our own family. And, 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 and I realized that the dreams behind the tour of a world where people with disabilities were free from barriers and could achieve their full potential had just begun. And that, other dream of a cure for spinal cord injury. Um, scientists were were still reluctant to even talk about it as a possibility one day. 
And so there was so much to be done. And I decided that, that uh, I wouldn't just return back to my Paralympic sport career as I'd originally planned, but that I would uh, continue on the journey and find my way to contribute as a leader to gain confidence that, that that's what I was actually doing through most of my early life, which was leading on on adventures, leading in my athletic teams, and uh, and then starting to lead on projects and, and initiatives. And and I wanted to keep moving forward. I saw the immense need. I, I listened to people who had disabilities, their families, uh, people with spinal cord injury and uh, the devastation uh, of their life uh, as they suffered through so much. And, and I wanted to, I wanted to help, and I still do. And so it's become a life mission. And I guess my youthful enthusiasm uh, and naivety uh, made me think, perhaps that you know that, that those dreams could be achieved a, a little bit more quickly. <laughs> but uh, mm. the reality is, they're they're massive dreams. Uh, they're some of the biggest challenges on this planet, and they're going to take decades and uh, probably and possibly generations. And uh, they're like the ultra marathons of social change. And so my my goal uh, was then to translate the awareness, the recognition, and the resources that we had generated from a one-time historic moment to an ongoing global movement to be able to inspire people to come together and, and collaborate because together we're stronger. And in spinal cord research, we've created a Rakansan Institute that connects scientists, researchers, doctors, uh, patients all across the country and all around the world to collaborate and to share knowledge and to measure the same things and to and to work on new discoveries and new therapies to help improve people's lives so that one day when a person has a spinal cord injury, um, they'll have a full recovery after their injury. Or if they're living with a spinal cord injury, there'll be a chance to go back and uh, and to gain some therapeutic treatment that will help them regain their function. And I know that we'll be able to achieve that and we'll be able to accelerate it because we've created this this global convening research and uh, and, and care platform. And um, I'm, I'm proud of that legacy and I know that that team will continue to do great work. And in the meantime, there's over 1.1 billion people on the planet today living with a disability, according to the World Health Organization. It's the world's largest minority. And yet, you know, people with disabilities uh, are still struggling to see laws being embedded in their countries that protect their basic rights to be included as equals and to have those laws be enforced. And, and, and And they haven't gone to the level of seeing it also become a, an understood economic contributor to society, uh, a productive possibility where people are not just passively participating and included in life, they're actually enabled to contribute and, and they're playing meaningful roles in their communities and ultimately they're, they're employees and, uh, and they're artists and they're actors and we don't have to hire an able-bodied actor at the Academy uh, Awards, uh, you know, uh, go and, and see that person play a person with a disability and win an award. Uh, we can actually see a, a person with a disability win an award uh, and play themselves and not play uh, a stereotyped disability part. They're just uh, a cool lawyer or, <laughs> or they're a cool adventurer, uh, somebody who's gone off to do great things. And, 
and and those those realities still have to happen. And it's hard to believe that in today's world there's still places in uh, the built environment, you know, that are not accessible when we build them. And and why? Because they often go to minimum standards. They they think it's good enough to to build a brand new building with a whole bunch of stairs to get in, and then oh, we'll put a ramp in the back door and call that a day, and and then charge hundreds of thousands of dollars to uh, to build the ramp because the design was flawed in the first place. <laughs> so, and then we then we build a myth that it's too costly to accommodate for people with disabilities. So my hope is that if we can create a global movement and we can really nail the built environment to make sure that people with disabilities can actually function and be included and be productive in the places and spaces that they live, work, and play, that uh, we'll be uh, able to accelerate progress dramatically and we'll be able to measure how accessible places are, whether they're in China, London, or in Tokyo, or in New York, or in Vancouver, or in Toronto, and, 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 and that will have a huge, uh, a huge accelerating uh, capability and we'll be able to professionalize the training in universal and inclusive design and actually have hundreds of thousands of people in the, in the design culture who are all trained in the same way, thinking innovatively when they, when they actually build a building or look at an old building and try to retrofit it. And, uh, and they'll create solutions that are practical for people with vision, hearing, mobility, or cognitive challenges and uh, these folks will be able to then naturally and, and seamlessly participate in all that society has to offer. And I think that will then permeate through to impact so many other areas of society where barriers exist. And you know, the one thing that really inspires me the most is that, you know, to, to create an inclusive global society where our diversity, of course, is our strength, but Bridges to inclusivity are critical to liberate that strength and that collaboration. And I think people with disabilities are the greatest convening bridge, uh, you know, that we have in today's society. We have 1.1 billion people. Doesn't matter whether you're Christian, Muslim, Jew, atheist, whether you're a male or a female, or whether you have a different cultural background. Uh, you know, it affects everyone, and it's dramatically increasing as our aging baby boomers continue to move forward and have disabling conditions. And any business leader, any government leader who, who, who thinks that this is just a charitable issue or just a human rights issue hasn't got it yet and they're going to fall behind and they're going to struggle. They need to know that when boomers arrive and the exponential growth of this uh, community starts demanding change, um, that if they don't see it as an economic opportunity and imperative to make change, they'll get left behind. And uh, I think this is the tip of the iceberg emerging over the next 20 years. And, and I believe over the next 30 years, we, we, we really do have a chance to, to see those two big dreams that I created and started on the Nana Motion Tour, a cure for spinal cord injury and a world that's free from barriers for people with disabilities. Uh, I think it's possible. And my greatest hope is that if someone happens to have a disability through a traumatic injury, uh, a disease, or or some unfortunate occurrence, uh, or if they're born with something, uh, that that they don't see 
and they're not driven to the place where maybe I was when I was 15, where I thought that I needed to be cured in order to be whole as a human being. I mean, I hope people can realize that you can, you can strive to want to be cured, to have a better life and not to have to suffer. Uh, but we can also still live uh, with our circumstances and realize that we're not alone. It's normalized and we can see uh, love, beauty and potential and meaning in each day and and ultimately know that we're accepted by our family, our friends, and our community as whole human beings, um, valued, respected, treated as equals, anchored by social justice and being encouraged to contribute to, uh, to our families and our communities and to make this world a better place. And that's what drives me as, as a thought leader, as someone who believes their best work is still in front I, uh, I believe that I can translate what was a journey of one man in motion into many in motion, continuing for many decades and possibly generations to get to that dream and to know that you've, uh, you've done your best. Uh, you know, you've tried to, to keep moving forward, live every day, feel grateful, try to stretch it out as long as you can. And I know for a fact that I would, looking back, would never, ever trade my life for the use of my legs. I truly feel like I'm one of the luckiest guys on the planet. Wow, that's, uh, that's a line uh, I remember from Pride of the Yankees with uh, Gary Cooper as Lou Gehrig. When he said it at the end, uh, today I feel I'm the luckiest guy on the face of the planet. Uh, amazing. That was very powerfully said, Rick. There was one thing in there that I'd like to highlight, if I may. You mentioned the business leaders in particular need to wake up to the economic opportunity presented from being able to be smart about serving the market of people with disabilities. I believe that you're absolutely correct about this. In fact, one of uh, the clients in one of Michael and I's programs is a young man named Dan Nisker. And uh, Dan um, was a fitness trainer who decided to focus on helping people specifically with a missing limb, who'd lost a limb either through war or an accident or what have you. And uh, so he started creating fitness programs for people with missing limbs. And I got to tell you, Rick, his business exploded. He went from fewer than 20 clients to almost 300 clients in, in a year. And he's become known for this. And he found himself a gentleman uh, by the name of Papito Wilson that he's partnered up with. This gentleman is a former Cuban Paralympian. He's won, I think, uh, a silver or a bronze or, or a gold and a silver. I'm not exactly sure uh, in a couple of sports. And um, it, it, from a purely economic point of view, the success of this business and of this venture has been astounding to us. Because this young man is only 27 years old right now, and he's on the verge of becoming a millionaire from this. And before, he could barely make the rent. Pretty amazing. Well, you know, that's a great story. And, and of course, you know, again, it just highlights you know, why, why this is important. And, you know, instead of seeing this as, uh, you know, as a burden, uh, you know, as a, as a challenge for accommodation, you know, this, uh, this issue becomes uh, an economic potential, not just, in, not just in being able to, let's just say, if we have a business, 
we have an aging workforce. You know, if you normalize culture about, you know, the fact that it's cool if you've got a disability, just, just declare it and let's work on the barriers so we can keep you along because you, we value you. We can customize solutions. We can put you in the sweet spot so you can have the best impact. We can also hire all these bright young kids who have disabilities coming out of universities and colleges. And, and the turnaround for, for that is, uh, you know, is, is, is a big deal. And, and so, you know, businesses perform and they, and they actually do really well just on that alone. But then there's customer service where you get a chance to actually uh, support uh, and, uh, and serve customers. And, and, and if you do it for people with disabilities, you actually win in the market. And then there's product development and you can uh, innovate and, and you can actually drive into this field and, and you can actually serve this field and it can be a great driving business beyond uh, just the, uh, you know, the social fabric of, uh, of service that we currently have today. And that, uh, that really starts to wake people up and they start going, yeah, you know, I mean, uh, uh, if I don't do this, I'm going to get left behind. And customers, are, they're, not, they're not stupid. You know, they'll, uh, they'll start picking places of business that uh, are more accessible. They can bring their colleagues, they can bring their friends, they can bring their family members. And, and, uh, and if, uh, if, if it's not certified as, as uh, you know, as, as silver, gold, or platinum uh, in accessibility, well, um, guess what? <laughs> People move on. 100%. Uh, that's powerfully said. There, there's another gentleman in the States named David Vibora. Uh, Starbucks uh, has a series of videos that they do on, on ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And he's got a, uh, a gym that he's created in Austin, Texas, where he serves uh, veterans from the U.S. military who've lost limbs in combat. And you, you, you got to watch the Starbucks video sometime, Rick. These guys, you know, who've got missing arms, missing legs, are like out there working out like badass warriors. It's awesome to watch. We actually um, play that video at, at our events to get people um, inspired by what's possible for them. And, and it's really powerful stuff. And what you're saying, I think. Well, and I think, of course, it's, it, it's super important too that you know that as boomers age, and their parents, of course, that you know that, that as they age and uh, and have disabling conditions, you know that they see that not as uh, as the end, but as uh, as a new beginning, and change the narrative so that that older generation that mm. maybe was brought up with you know a, a, a factual reality at the time, which is you were really in trouble if you had a disability you know, back maybe uh, 50 years ago, but boy, we're in the year 2017 as we do this interview and, 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 uh, you know, things have changed dramatically for our, our ability to function with information technology, customer service, uh, creativity, innovation, and the way in which we work and serve. So, uh, those old views are no longer as relevant. And so uh, we can actually change the game and, and, uh, and the less burdened people are as they deal with that, um, again, the more productive and sustainable a society will be. Well said, 100%. Well, listen, we like to wrap up uh, each interview by asking our guests to share their top three expert action steps with our listener of things that you recommend they take on in order for them to make the difference they were born to make and live a life of purpose. What would yours be, Rick? You know, I think the first thing is is to be able to be uh, self-aware and uh, and to reflect on, uh, on on who you are, to uh, to see the things that you care about or you believe in, the passions that you have, uh, 
and uh, and to be also able to manage your life and the most precious most precious thing that we have in our life is time and uh, and so to be able to align you know the application of your time through that self-awareness to have integrity i think that's the greatest precursor and then and then lastly to to really uh, to really surround yourself with great people to to be able to ensure that you uh, you know you, you match up the people that you're surrounded with with who you are and uh, and and that and that, that gives you a, a sense of meaning purpose and and uh, and that uh, really gives you you know capacity and potency in your life so so self awareness you know the alignment of time and uh, surrounding yourselves with people and then if we have a discipline and we and we think about gratitude and uh, and if we also uh, as we go forward we we are mindful of our thoughts and our attitude those are the things that will uh, will will bring us forward uh, you know to the best possible level because those are things we can control you know we can always express gratitude and we can always be mindful of the way we're thinking because sometimes the way we're thinking actually drives the way we're feeling and uh, and if we're constantly driven into that negative world, then we start to vibrate and uh, and ultimately uh, we we don't feel as well and and uh, and so that disciplined uh, sort of self regulation uh, and accountability is uh, is so important and no one's perfect but I think uh, if we kind of keep thinking about that, it gives us the great borders to uh, to live the best life we can. Powerfully said. Powerfully said. So, Rick, how can people get involved? How can they contribute to your foundation and, and and help move the mission forward? Well, you know, we we need a we need a, a global team of difference makers, and uh, this you know mission is not possible without people thinking about the uh, the issue of disability to understand it's a big deal to think about their attitudes and the attitudes of others from move it from negative to positive and get rid of stigma. But we also need a bunch of barrier busters who, who want to uh, see barriers in the community and uh, and break them down so people with disabilities can get on with life. And so they can reach us at rickhanson.com, and uh, they can uh, they can kind of uh, look at our website. They can uh, show support through donations. They can uh, inquire about volunteering and uh, becoming ambassadors or being sponsors or even. Uh, even who knows, maybe in maybe in this podcast, uh, you know, the, the listeners that will be uh, out there, you know, maybe there's the, there's that one Warren Buffett who's uh, interested in in investing uh, not in their own charity, but but actually investing in someone else's charity that's moving forward with the vision, and they just need that next level of wind in the sail to uh, scale up and to get to the place where they want to be and make that difference that is absolutely critical. Mm. And so uh, we're open to uh, anyone who has ideas, thoughts, and is interested in joining the team. That's fantastic. And you know what? I'll, I'll reach out to you offline at some point. Um, I know some people, they're not quite Warren Buffett, but they are they do okay. So I'd be happy to make some introductions for you if you'd like that. And uh, it's just been an absolute honor having you on this podcast, the great Rick Hansen himself on our podcast, Michael. It's been a great day. I've just been sitting here reflecting, listening to you, Rick. And, uh, you know, we we don't get paid to do this podcast, but this today, getting to meet and talk with our heroes, that's payment all, all in one shot. So it's been awesome. 
Well, thanks a lot, you guys. I really appreciate it. It's been great spending time with you and uh, all the best to you. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. Take care. Michael, Rick Hansen was on our podcast. Oh, yeah. I've been looking forward to this one. I'm sure the... uh, the listeners, we may have gushed a little bit, but you know what? It, who Gushing's cares? good. I don't Gushing's care. good, I don't buddy. Care. Come on. When you've got great people on the podcast, you got to do what you got to do. You know, he gave us some gold, though. He gold. really did. So, If you're not inspired right now, I mean, to, to go out, I mean. Yeah, you probably, you probably don't have a heart. But let me just tell you what I got from the podcast that I think is important to highlight for the listeners. So number one is. He was hit with massive adversity, and like anybody, there was a period in which he felt sorry for himself, but he reframed all that. And by reframing all that, he was able to create for himself a life of meaning, a life for purpose, and turn himself into a global icon and a global thought leader. And I think what's important here for our listener is to understand that that exists for you. You may not be able to be Rick Hansen, but you can be the very best version of who you are. You can make uh, the difference you were born to make. You can live that life for purpose. So I think that one was really powerful. Yeah. Second thing that really, really hit home for me was how much emphasis he put on the importance of not doing it alone, having the right peers around you, having people who are ready to encourage you. And there's so many people who listen to this podcast who at this stage in their life may be trying to do it alone. And that may be why they're not living the life they were meant to live. So, you know, if you get anything from this, don't do it alone. Surround yourself with great peers, find great mentors. That was another thing he said that was really powerful. And then he spoke of what's possible for people in business in terms of economic opportunity from making a difference in the world and and making a difference for, in this case, people with disabilities. And our very own Dan Nisker, as you know, is someone who's doing that. So what I got from that is economic opportunity exists. You can do really, really well from doing good. And that was very powerful for me, Michael. Yeah, multiple levels and one of the longest episodes to date. Uh, But I I just, it was just pure gold. And I was it? Time flew by for me, man. (laughs) I'm the guy looking at the clock here and we're almost at an hour. So, uh, Rick, we probably bumped Rick onto, uh, he's probably backed up as well. So, we'll wrap it up. But it was amazing. It it was amazing. It was a really great episode, very inspirational to, you know, man in motion, go out do whatever it is that you're looking to do take that action go yeah. go do it and uh, and that's it let's yeah and go contribute to uh, his foundation they're doing really good work and go buy the song John Parr's uh, St. Elmo's Fireman in Motion song I could just it's just going through my head ever since you you and uh, you mentioned it and he started talking about how that song came about but to segue powerfully Michael Rick Hansen has become a global icon and a thought leader by establishing himself as an authority. And our listener can do that. And we have a very powerful tool that we give away as a gift called the Authority Marketing Blueprint. Could you tell the folks about this, Michael, and why it's so powerful? Well, the most powerful thing about it is that it's simple. It's one page. There's 10 steps. You follow those steps. It's going to, literally, it will make a difference for you. And it's super easy to get thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com forward slash authority. Just download it, 
check it out. And who knows, we might even send you another uh, email after you opt in uh, of some other awesome, cool thing. So go do it. We've got some other cool uh, URLs now too, right? We got uh, authority.rocks. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you, can, you, you can go to that Author- if you want to feel yeah. like a rock star. You know, authorityrocks.com. It's all there. It's easy, but uh, download it. Let us know what you think. Let us know what you're taking on. And uh, I hope this episode was as inspiring for you as it was for both Nikki and I. Well, that wraps another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership Podcast. And what an episode it was. If you'd like to learn more about our guest today and to get all the show notes, go to thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to the Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening. 